Welcome to All Axes, brought to you by Mazak, a podcast where we interview the people helping to shape the future of manufacturing to give you a better understanding of where we're heading and why. We believe that with an understanding of technology, workforce, and market trends, you can always grow your business. My name is Teelan Henderson, and I'll be your host. Joining us today to discuss the five common missteps he's witnessed in job shops is Chuck Burkle with Mazak. Chuck, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you. So you've been in this industry for a long time. You've called on a lot of different job shops over the years. Uh, can you tell me a time that you walked into a job shop and thought, just this company gets it. They're, they're just guaranteed to succeed. Well, I don't know if there's any um, real guarantees to succeed. Um, nothing, nothing is sure, as we all know. Um, one of the things that I've noticed with shops that seem to get it are shops that truly understand they have to differentiate themselves. They have to keep moving. They have to keep investing into newer, uh, more relevant technology, or they will get left behind. Right. So you've come up with five missteps that that you have witnessed over the years. Uh, And I have that list in front of me, and uh, I'm just going to ask you a few questions about it. The first one you have is allowing your customer to commoditize their relationship. Can you tell us a little about that? Well, when we look at job shops, they have a relationship with their customers who say we'll call OEMs. And uh, just by nature of um, job shop business, the OEMs um, are looking for price, price, price. Mm -hmm. Uh, They assume that quality is a given. They assume delivery is given. And some OEMs are very good at just coming down on top of the job shop and saying, listen, you know, be at this price or I'm going to go somewhere else. So they do a good job, unfortunately, commoditizing the relationship, meaning you, Mr. Job Shop, are just the same as everybody else. And if you don't say yes to this price, um, I'll find somebody that does. So I would say that some of the shops that I've seen that truly get it are ones that can configure their manufacturing processes, their human resources, and the ways that they go about business to differentiate themselves. And they try to break that uh, relationship to keep commoditization from taking place. I'd say a few examples of customers that have put strategies in place to reduce commoditization are people that invest in equipment that have uh, new innovative processes. And if you have new innovative processes, there's an opportunity. I mean, if you look at the spectrum, um, you know, like what is the opposite of commoditizing a relationship? I would say to build intimacy in the relationship. So then how can you make intimacy as a job shop uh, with your customer and your OEM? Um, So if you have a standard eight inch chuck, uh, two axis CNC lathe, you're going to be producing parts like everybody else. And it's just going to come down to uh, price and you will be put in the commoditization bucket. So investing in technology is the the best way to commoditizing that relationship? Um, I think one of them um, is, is investing in newer technology. For example, if you had a new innovative multitasking machine, that mm-hmm. had multiple axes, and these multiple axes allowed surfaces and features to be machined without special tooling, special fixturing, special work holding. Um, it would give the job shop the ability to go back to the customer and to say, 
Uh, listen, you know, I know that this hole here on your print is at 45 degrees. And uh, why is it why is it at 45 degrees? Well, it's at 45 degrees because it's always been at 45 degrees. Um, building intimacy with a customer would be able to make the statement of, well, you know, I've really looked at this and if you can allow me to put this angle in at such and such a relationship to this surface, I could actually save you 6% because I don't have to get into special fixturing, custom tooling, custom work holding, and I can actually give you a little bit better surface finish. Would you be interested in that? So the greater the capabilities of the job shop, the more they're able to assess the true needs of the customer and create a dialogue, uh, building a deeper relationship versus just uh, based on price alone. Yeah, and I think also intimacy is delivering the parts and not only delivering the parts on time, but being a partner with your customer. Partner right now is probably one of the most overused words in the American dictionary. Um, most job shops get orders for parts, say, in a batch of 100. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that buyer on Friday won't need 100 of them, but he'll need seven because something came up and there's a big rush. And if you can be that guy, because, say, you've invested in done in one multitasking, you can produce parts complete and ship them, and you can ship all five, six, or seven of those parts uh, by Friday, um, you've just won over a customer. So now you've slowly morphed the relationship into I'm just another me too guy as compared to I am a customer that can really help uh, solve your problems when the red light comes on. So I would say some of the successful shops that I've seen are people that make investments and have strategies in place to reduce a commoditization relationship with their customer. Missteps are those that just fall into the me too bucket right. and buy machines that tend to be uh, just good enough, but really not enough to take you to the next mile. Right. Not, not, not differentiators. Well, that, that leads us into our next misstep. Buy new technology when your customer dictates you do, or when you're busy. Uh, when is the right time to buy new technology? Well, I'm not sure there's ever a perfect time, but Typically, um, some of the missteps I've seen uh, shops take is they buy machines when they're really, really busy and they're making a hundred of something and all of a sudden they get an uplift and now they have to make 125 of something within the same time period. Everybody's stretched, everybody's maxed out, programming's backed up, CMM is backed up, shipping is backed up. Some of the missteps that I've seen are people that invest when their business is booming and peaking, um, which if it's booming and peaking, that's good. And if you need to buy, buy. But at the same time, um, identifying slower periods. Uh, by nature, when we go through slower periods, such as we are now with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, um, is actually a good time for the woodcutter to move over to the side, sharpen his axe, and with the shop uh, to start looking at their capabilities and redefine and honing them. So really, one of the missteps that I've seen are people that are reluctant to invest in newer technology. They lay back, they wait, they wait, and all of a sudden, um, the guy on the other side of the driveway, the other machine shop, 
uh, just took delivery four weeks ago of a, of a brand new multitasking done in one machine, for example. And now the shop is forced to go ahead and match that uh, investment. And they have to match it with very, very little time to prove out programming, work holding, fixturing. So it's the old saying, um, you know, buy it um, when you can, not when your customer dictates that you must. Right. That, otherwise, you end up just playing catch up the entire time. I believe another um, misstep that I see shops making is the just good enough mentality where a machine tool is just good enough to make this particular part. And they're really not looking for the long grain. I had somebody once say a long time ago, you know, when you size an automatic tool change magazine, you know, that nobody ever complained about buying too many tools. Well, <laughs> I've right. seen a lot of people complain about buy not buying enough tools in a magazine, but I've never seen anybody complain about having uh, too many tools. Uh, another thing I learned, um, I came across uh, a really, really wise group of guys, um, and they would always buy the largest piece of equipment in any particular product segment that they could. And they told me that they did that because their father said, um, the larger equipment you buy, the more of your competitors you deem irrelevant. Hmm. So as workpieces uh, tend to get larger in some particular cases, um, if you've got a three-meter machine and you've decided to buy a four-meter machine just in case, um, if that work comes along and it's three and a half meters, you just cut out about 90% of your competition. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I, I like that. So when you are investing in technology, there's a difference between price and cost. Uh, can you speak to that? Well, I think most of us are familiar with price and cost. I think in manufacturing, we have to realize that uh, sometimes we have to take our consumer hat off and, and think more in an industrial application. And, you know, it's not really the price of the machine. It, it's what it does for you. Mm -hmm. We were in a situation once where we thought it was in the best interest of a customer to buy a Palatech or an unattended um, manufacturing cell to put in front of the horizontal. Um, and the customer was, was balking at the price. And I forget what the price is, make up a number, say $55,000. And the customer said, $55,000, my goodness, you know, these are pallet stands, it's a robot, it's a cell controller, it's cables, it's this, it's that. And it doesn't have a spindle. I mean, it actually doesn't make parts. All it does is feed parts and uh, unload parts from the machine. And I'll never forget his comment. He goes, for that much money, you know, I could buy a 45-foot C-Ray. Okay, well, you know, sea rays are nice, and God God knows we all love boats, but in the end, um, whatever that investment was, fifty or $55,000, it effectively made his horizontal machining center two horizontal machining centers because he could run second shift, he could run third shift unattended, and produce a lot more parts in an unattended fashion. Uh, his uh, throughput would be increased. His dependency on labor would be reduced. Um, his setup would be free. So at that point, it's, it's really not what the price of this particular unit is. It's the cost. And look at how if he invested in that uh, unattended automated solution, how his costs would be impacted. And getting back to this philosophy, 
I see some people so focused on price and so focused on, um, uh, oh, it's, it's just good enough. It's just good enough. Um, it's really important to realize that, you know, most people carry a machine, say, for five years, 60 months. You know, they depreciate it over a 60-month cycle. And you're starting a relationship when you buy a machine tool that lasts 60 months. So price of the machine tool is a one-time thing. It affects you when you buy the machine. But the cost of the machine tool, what it can do for you, the savings that it can provide, it's it's a, at least a five-year thing. So you have to look at the difference between price and cost. And some customers get just so enamored with, I, I, I got to get the absolute best price. But don't, what they don't really, really realize is the total life cycle cost of the machine tool could actually be greater in the end if you look at this not just as a one-time thing, but a relationship over 60 months. It ends up being more like an iceberg, you know, and people get fixated on that tip when there's so much beneath the water that, that needs to be factored in when it comes to these kind of decisions. You know, another example that I remember is a customer who went ahead and spent um, more money than he originally planned on an automated cell from us. And we were at a trade show, and uh, we were just sitting around chit-chatting after he made the investment. And um, one of my competitors came up and talked to the customer and said, hey, why didn't you buy my brand? I was uh, much, much less money. And my customer had a very interesting look in his eye. He said, well, you know, yes, you did, but I couldn't afford your machine. And the guy said, well, what do you mean you couldn't afford my machine? I was less money. And the customer said, no, I really value my home life. My kids are in soccer. Um, I want to be a present dad. I don't want to be a helicopter dad, just kind of zooming in and zooming out. And with this unattended cell that I bought, I'm able to load this thing up at 5 o'clock in the afternoon with parts, hit the green button, hit my first kid's soccer game, hit my daughter's soccer game, go home, eat dinner with my family, go back to the shop at 10.30, load it up with material, and then when I come in at 6 in the morning, I have material set for the morning shift. And I'll never forget it. He just looked at me and he said, how could you possibly put a price onto that? That's such a great uh, uh, quality of life. Yeah, and he was, he, was a, that, that, that's he, he was a young guy, and I was, I'll never forget this, where um, he just said, you know, most of us have more money than we have time. And... Um, uh, that comment really resonated as it relates to price versus cost. Another misstep that job shops make is not protecting their brand. Uh, how, how does one go about defining their brand and, and marketing themselves uh, like that? Well, when we say brand relative to job shops, um, the company's name, what they stand for, um, is just a great, great way to differentiate yourself from the rest of the noise that's out there. Uh, some of the missteps that I've, I see is uh, companies don't go ahead and hire um, a good marketing firm or a good web developer to um, really develop the brand. Now, what I mean by the brand is um, your brand, your company name, do you have a color? Do you have a logo? Mm -hmm. Do you have something yeah. that stands out? 
I mean, do you have a, uh, a brand promise? Do you have a mission statement? Is that mission statement on your website? Is the mission statement real or is it just words? Do you follow that mission statement, the core values of honesty and integrity um, closely, or is it just hype? Uh, some of the shops that I've seen that are more successful than others tend to really focus on their shop as an actual brand, and they protect that brand fiercely. Um, they monitor what's being said about them in social media. If there's any disgruntled customers that are flaming them on social media, they address it correctly. Uh, they treat their employees their suppliers, their customers with honesty and integrity. And also, if you stop and think about it, protecting the brand, nurturing the brand, developing the brand. You know, how many job shops out there are, say, really good at producing titanium? You know, like titanium is their thing. Um, if there is a large customer from Boeing or Lockheed or Raytheon or Caterpillar, and they're looking for a shop to produce a titanium component. Will they find you? How will they find you? Have you set up your website and have you done SEO correctly? So if they type in looking for medium size job shop, high quality with titanium expertise, fast turnaround, will you be um, above the fold or below the fold? Will your shop um, pop up? Or will you be lost in the noise? So when I say that um, some missteps that shops take uh, is by not protecting their brand, uh, it's not only not protecting it, but also not promoting it. Right. Do, do you think that most job shops feel that they have a defined brand, that, that they know uh, what they would like to be known for? I think so. I think um, some of the shops that um, are really, really good. I had one, one customer that I felt was a really good shop. They were properly branded. Um, they had a good reputation in the industry. And I asked him, I said, how do you do it? He said, well, I've learned over the years that <clears throat> this is the job shop owner speaking. When I look out into the customer market, there seems to be really, really good parts for us to run. And then there's really, really good companies to do business with. And he said, they're not always the same. Sometimes I find parts that are perfect for my company, but the people just aren't a match to deal with. Or vice versa. They're very nice people. They pay their bills on time. They're very honorable, credible, but they just don't have work that fits our uh, work statement here correctly. The customers that I look for are the ones that have both. That, that's a tricky uh, middle ground to hit, but, but, but admirable. I, I like that. Swinging big to hit the home run with a once-in-a-lifetime contract is, is, is a misstep that, that I, I think we've all seen job shops make uh, in the past. Uh, how do you avoid doing that? I mean, it's, it's tempting. Well, it sure is, and it's a rather touchy subject. I mean, it's the American yeah. way. I cannot think of a job shop owner that doesn't wake up in the morning and dream of that big job that's coming in through the door. Of course. And um, certainly, um, there's just some large jobs that, you know, you do want to take and you want to make a lot of money and, and get your company up to the next level. Mm -hmm. Some mistakes I've seen jobs, job shops make is when they take that home run swing with that big job 
and they're just really not prepared for it. Uh, they're not prepared with the capital to pay for the work and process inventory, for the material, for the staffing. Uh, they don't have the quality control infrastructure in place that their customer demands. And as a result of that, big contracts equal big problems. And if you're a small shop and you have a big problem, it becomes a big deal. You just don't have the infrastructure in terms of administration, legal, human resources to deal with something super big that, uh, that goes bad. So I don't think there's any thing wrong, obviously, swinging for the fences and going after that big job. <clears throat> you know, you have to ask yourself, really, um, <clears throat> you know, I had one guy tell me, he said, you know, I would rather make 10 parts for 10 customers than 100 parts for one customer. That one customer has me captive. That one customer ties me up. That yeah. one customer makes me say no to many others. And um, it's just a delicate balance that I don't think there's any any right or wrong answers here. It's just something to be very mindful of. It takes a real self-awareness and, and, and honest self-assessment to see if you're ready for those big jobs. Uh, because if when they come along, they are tempting. I mean... Some job shop owners treat their business more like a, a paycheck than, than, than a business to grow. Uh, how do you get away from that mindset? Well, I don't know if there's anything wrong with treating your job shop as a paycheck. I mean, we all right. get up in the morning and go somewhere to make money. Um, <clears throat> it's just the capitalization that's needed to become a machine shop owner is is quite steep. And in some cases, I've seen... Uh, people that buy, you know, small, very inexpensive machines. And, you know, the shop owner had, has worked for a big company for a long time and got laid off and they're tired of getting laid off. So they want to go ahead and control their own destiny and they buy a machine that's, quote, just good enough. And really, in the end, um, they're running that company to make the wage that they would have had if they were a machinist working for a big company. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. I think, though, when we look at a, a longer-term strategy by which to differentiate, um, there's so much competition out there, yeah. uh, not only in the United States and North America, but offshore. Um, how is that person going to really compete in the grand scheme of things and sustain over a career if that person doesn't focus on treating this entity like a company and not just a job. For example, um, how that job shop owner conducts his business. Normally, job shop owners are busy. They are the guy that uh, programs the machine, sets the machine up, cuts the material, places the mm -hmm. material, locks the vice, pushes the green button, um, signs the paycheck, does everything. And I think so many job shop owners do just such a great, great job um, at doing that. At the same time, though, I think it's very important. Um, and one of the missteps that I've seen of job shop owners, they, st they stay so focused on running the business on the short term, they really don't have time to pull over, get to the side of the road, develop a strategic plan, right. maybe go to a couple of accounting classes at night, really learn some benefits about um, uh, bonus depreciation, take a couple of classes on human resources, 
um, take a few classes on new advanced technologies such as um, additive to just try to get out of the day-to-day and look uh, look forward. Focus on the future and really not just uh, just getting through the day. Yeah. You know, it's it's risk. It's risk reward. And right. in order to get reward, you have to invest and investment is risk. But mm-hmm. um, I think it's important that uh, small business owners really take a few minutes out a couple of couple of hours a week and uh, really try to look forward. You know, there's an old management principle that I've always followed. And that is um, when I look at the people that work for me. Each of them does something differently. And I don't want to be an expert and do exactly what they do. Mm-hmm. That's their uniqueness. And if I can do exactly what they can do, I don't need them. But I always ad- adhere to the management principle that I want to know what they do. If they're mm-hmm. gone for a day, I want to be able to at least do it or understand it. Right. I see some shop owners that rely so much and they delegate so much onto people and they have no idea what that person's doing. Quality control, accounting, shipping, just try to be a little bit more hands-on and understand the different elements of the company. And uh, I think overall there's, there's a lot, lot of benefits in doing that. It is, it is a company, run it like a company, run it like a business. Yeah. So is there a future for job shops in America? I sure hope so. Um, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, um, job shops in America and North America uh, are, are a large portion of our business. Um, there's probably no one larger business segment than, uh, than the job shops. And I think when we look at job shops, contract shops, um, especially in the United States, I think that they have more productivity uh, per worker than any country in the world. Job shops here in North America, especially in the United States, have more access to capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lenders are more savvy. Uh, it's not always easy, but it's easier uh, for these people to get financing. And um, it's just the American way. I think that uh, when we look at job shops, you know, why are there job shops? They're job shops because there's some company that want to buy, companies that want to buy parts and not make parts. So the big OEMs, they don't want to capitalize. They want their Wall Street earnings to look good. So they don't capitalize on um, big equipment. So they buy their parts. So yes, job shops are definitely needed uh, to make parts. And I think um, job shops in the United States are absolutely brilliant. The American spirit, uh, the ingenuity, access to capital, um, some of the financial incentives that are finally uh, put in place uh, to help with bonus depreciation, not as a political weapon, but as a um, an actual financial tool to help shops. Um, I think now is a very, very good time uh, to be in the job shop business. Chuck, thank you for joining us today. And if you'd like to learn more about some of the common missteps that job shops make, reach out to your local machine tool salesman or anyone in your professional network. Be sure to subscribe to All Axes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, 
or you can always visit our website at mazakusa.com for the latest episode.